Well, last week we covered um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And as you may remember, what has been the emphasis of Paul as we've been going through Ephesians has been the importance of unity. It's the importance of us being one as a body of Christ. And yet the question often comes up when it comes to unity. If unity is so important, then why is it that we often divide with other Christians when it comes to our beliefs and when it comes to doctrine? And it's a good question because unity is certainly emphasized throughout the scriptures. And at the same time, the truth of God and a right understanding of truth and the that truth not being distorted um, is very important to us all. In fact, I remember being in seminary and asking a professor, um, how do we know when to unite and when to divide and talking about those who may have some false beliefs, destructive beliefs. Um, his response was, and I believe he was quoting Adrian Rogers when he said, I would rather be divided by truth than united in error. Amen. And so that is important to us. Um, that is important for us to remember. Unity within the body is how we glorify God. But it's just as Jesus Christ said to the woman at the well that God the Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and what? Truth. Spirit and truth. So we want to hold on to the truth. We want to make sure we uphold the truth. We want to make sure that we seek out the truth in God's word and that we understand it and apply it correctly. That's not to say that any one of us has the market cornered on orthodoxy. That's not to say that any one of us has perfect understanding of everything that is in the scriptures. But there are certain truths that come forth in Scripture which are undeniable. There are certain truths that the only way to miss it would be to intentionally distort it or to read in your own ideas into it. And so we seek to preserve unity based upon the truths that we all confess. And we want to be careful about those who bring destructive ideas that compromise those core truths. And so as we come back this morning, we're in part two of a um, set of messages that I called the unity which Christ came to establish. The unity which Christ came to establish. And it's fitting, especially in this Christmas season, as our focus is upon the coming of Jesus Christ, we should be talking about our Lord Christ. We should be talking about why he came and not simply just celebrating him as a baby in the manger. You know, we want to understand that Jesus Christ came as a reflection of God's love. John 3, 16, we know that verse very well, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that he who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We understand those truths, but so often they get misunderstood. So often people think that Jesus came um, in order to simply just bring more love into the world. No, we know that Jesus came in order to express God's love and his love for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And not only for dying on the cross for our sins, but in dying on the cross, he came to establish his church. Just like he told Peter after Peter had confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus told Peter that on this rock, I will build my church. And so we recognize that the church is the outcome of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. 
And that within the church, we want to be united. We want to show ourselves to be, to be one with one another. Jesus Christ himself even said that they shall know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so this morning, as we continue on, we looked at verses 1 to 3 last week. And this week, we'll look at really the start of verses 4 through 6. But for today, we're going to cover verse 4. Um, <clears throat> and uh, my purpose uh, this morning, and we're going to continue this uh, two weeks from now, uh, my purpose this morning is to examine the unique sevenfold basis of unity that all believers share that leads to Christ-honoring unity within the church. Again, the sevenfold basis of unity that all believers share that leads to Christ-honoring unity within the church. And this is so important because for many of us within the church, we often neglect the importance of developing our relationships with one another within the church. We're surrounded by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here in the church, and yet we don't often spend the time that we ought to getting to know one another, understanding each other's struggles, praying for one another, essentially loving one another, counseling one another, encouraging one another, essentially practicing all the multitude of one another's that we see throughout Scripture. And sometimes the excuse that we have is that I can't relate to that person. That person is so different from me. That person is difficult to get along with, difficult to communicate with. You know, but what we see in the scriptures is that you have more in common with even the least of your fellow believers than you do with your best friends out in the secular world. And so we're going to start to look at some of the basis of that unity, those things that we share in common, which are so crucial to all of us. And this sevenfold basis of unity, these seven realities that I'm going to cover starting this morning, these seven realities did not apply to any of you prior to knowing Christ. And they all apply to you now. And each one of these seven realities is more important than even your favorite hobby in the secular world, your favorite activities. You know, whether it be sports, whether it be shows that you watch, whether it be the types of activities that you like to engage in, all the things that we often rally around with people for the basis of friendship because of a shared interest. What we're going to start covering is even stronger and more important to you as a child of God than any of those secular activities could ever be. And so this morning we'll start to take a look at some of these bases of unity. But let's go ahead and read through the entire section. And really, this section that starts in chapter 4, verse 1, continues all the way to the end of, I believe, chapter 16. So we'll go ahead and read through it. Chapter 4, verses 1 through verse 16. And Paul writes, starting in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That is the larger section that is all emphasizing the importance of unity and the building up of the body of Christ. And as a reminder, this, when we started in verse 1, that was the central command of the book of Ephesians. And just to review what we learned last week as we had started chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we saw in verse 1 the central command for the book of Ephesians, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy means your walk, meaning the way that you live, the way that you behave, is to be equal to the calling by which you have been called. That calling being your salvation. That calling being that calling from God for you to come out of darkness into light. And that your walk to be equal, to be equivalent, to be worthy of that calling which you have received. And then verse 2 is where... Paul lays down the conviction upon us and starts providing us the means, the the method by the manner of which we are to walk. We we see humility there. Humility is where we treat others as more important than ourselves, where we regard not only our own interests, but also the interests of others. And we saw him calling us to gentleness. Gentleness is also known as meekness, but it's not to be confused with weakness. It is not weakness, but is often voluntarily waiving your own rights in order to help another person. We saw patience there in verse 2, this idea of long-suffering, of being able to endure the mistakes and struggles of other people, showing tolerance. It says there not only patience, but showing tolerance for one another in love. And of course, that love that is mentioned at the end of that verse, that is the agape love. That is the unconditional love. That is the love that seeks the highest good for each and every other person. And then in verse 3, we saw the priority of our walk, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent meaning to make every effort, okay, to spare no effort. Make every effort to preserve. So the, the idea of preserving being that this unity is not something that we achieve. This unity is something that Jesus Christ achieved, but we are here to preserve it. The unity of the Spirit, and of course, it's bound up. It's in the bonds of peace because what Christ came to do, he established peace between peoples. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, but he also established peace between us and God. And as I had mentioned, 
As after he talks about these things in the first three verses, he's then going to go into seven realities. Seven realities that we all share in common. Seven realities that did not pertain to any one of us prior to salvation, but apply to all of us now. And as I mentioned, they are more important than any secular interests or commonalities you may have with other people. And so we start with the first of those seven realities. The first of those seven realities is that we function in the same body. We function in the same body. And starting right there in verse 4, Paul says there is one body. Now what's interesting is that in the Greek, the word the words that we see here in English, there is, it's not there. In fact, after Paul finished verse 3, he's basically listing off the ones. After verse 3, he basically says one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Paul is just rattling off all the basis of unity that we have in order to further strengthen that unity that we are to preserve, that unity of the spirit. Now, when he talks about us being one body, who are we the body of? Christ. We are the body of Christ. And there is only one body. We are not of the same body with unbelievers. We are not of the same body of cults. We are not of the same body of false religions. In fact, even looking back at the history of this church, I was um, told that at the very beginning of this church, um, we were at a different location and, uh, and, and we had uh, taken the building of what had previously been a Buddhist church. That was very interesting to me because my parents were grown up, uh, grown up in Buddhist background. You know, and I, there, there's some Buddhist influences in, in, uh, in our upbringing and some of the beliefs that we had. But we understand that as Christians, as kind and as peaceful as Buddhists may appear to be, we are not of the same body with Buddhists. We are not of the same body with anyone except those who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So we all exist in one body. But this idea of being in a body also implies that we are together as a team. We are together as a team. We are to serve one another. We are to help one another. We are to function with one another. You know, when Jesus Christ went up into heaven, before he went up into heaven, he told his disciples, greater works than than what I did, you will do. He said that to them in the book of John. And what happened in the book of Acts, you see the start of the church and the multiplication of people being added to the church. And even today, while Jesus Christ is up in heaven, we see the church continuing to grow. We see people coming to faith and not just here, but in all parts of the world. We are all part of the body of Christ. We are doing the will of Christ. We are fulfilling his great commission. But we are called into this body to be a unity to be together, that the people within the body should be more important to you than anyone else outside the body, even your own family members who are not believers. Our fellow brothers and sisters must be most important to us. That is the priority that Jesus Christ even gave us. But there's also something to understand about body when Paul makes reference to the body of Christ, because there is both a universal body as well as a local body. Okay, the universal body, what I mean is the universal body is basically all believers all around the world who have come to a true saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all part of that body of Christ. And yet we know that the universal body is broken out into a series of local bodies of Christ. 
So here at Western Avenue Baptist Church, we are a local body of Christ. And the one another's that are often emphasized in these letters assume that we are exercising that first and foremost within our local body. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't work together with other churches. That doesn't mean that we can't rally around together with other believers from other churches. We can and we should do that. In fact, I know some of you, I know there's a couple of people here that actually serve at k Christ Community Church in El Centro, where they feed the homeless once a week. And that's a wonderful ministry. It's a wonderful example of having a joint effort where we're coming together, people from different churches, to help serve a common need. But when you look at the letters, and starting with Ephesians here, but any of the epistles that you pick out, Paul's instruction to them when it comes to loving one another, it's focused upon that local congregation. You know, the believers in Ephesus were not expected to fix the problems in Corinth. The believers in Corinth were not expected to address the issues that were happening in Philippi. Each local body were to function with one another in itself. So just to help you understand, while there is one universal body, there is also a local body. And for us as a local body, we want to live out the love of Christ with one another. Now, what's interesting also is I mentioned that there are seven realities here that we all share in common. But it's interesting that Paul starts with the body. Because amongst this seven, he talks about the body. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the hope. He talks about the Lord, Jesus Christ. He talks about our faith, the baptism. And he talks about God. In talking about these realities, one might think that he would start by talking about God. Or he would talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he would talk about the Holy Spirit. But he actually starts with the body. And that shows you his clear emphasis. It's not that the body is greater than God. It is not. But he starts with the body because that is, his, that is where his heart is. That's where his emphasis is. That's where he wants to see the love of Christ being played out within the body of Christ. So he starts off by mentioning the body in this list of seven. So we're all part of the same body of Christ. We know that Christ died for the church, for the body of Christ. And some churches proclaim that you don't even need to believe in Jesus Christ to be a part of the church. I just heard recently there was a church on the East Coast that they invited anyone to come in and worship with them because their focus was not upon the will of God as revealed to us in his scriptures. Their focus was upon social causes was focused upon things like racial equality and climate change. And they said that as long as you shared the same goal that they did in helping to correct social injustices and helping to bring about um, better climate control, then you, in their eyes, were part of the church. And there are churches, I'm reminded of one up in Canada, where a female pastor is a self-proclaimed atheist of a church. How can an atheist be a pastor of a church? Well, she is. Because she views the word of God as just being a helpful set of spiritual suggestions and not authoritative. You know, but we are one body together. We are one body together, but we are one body for Christ. We believe the truths that are brought to us by Scripture. And we, we seek to obey the commandments of the one another's to love one another within the church. 
But the second reality, the first reality here was about this one body. But we transition into the second reality, which Paul mentions together, one body and one spirit. So we go from the first reality, which is that we are, we function in the same body, to the second reality, which is we are led by the same spirit. We are led by the same spirit. And so we continue on in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Now, this one spirit, clearly this is referring to the Holy Spirit. This is clearly referring to the Spirit of God. And we'll see in a moment why the Spirit is mentioned after the body. They are closely connected in many ways. And first, let's look at some of the ministries that are involved in the Holy Spirit. These are ministries of the Holy Spirit that you'd be familiar with, but maybe you hadn't thought about them in the context of the unity that's within the body of Christ. Take a look at uh, back at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We read, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. And the focus there is that this is the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, this Holy Spirit was given as a pledge of our inheritance. A pledge of our inheritance. The idea is that we have something to look forward to. We know that this world is not our end, end destination. Our final destination is going to be the eternal state. That's going to be established by God and Jesus Christ after Jesus Christ returns. And we have a promise of an inheritance. And the pledge of that inheritance is the Holy Spirit given to us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. And the Holy Spirit gives us that promise. So we have that ministry of the Holy Spirit to seal us and to be a pledge of our inheritance. But next, further down in chapter, still in chapter 1, but verses 17 and 18, we read that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And he goes on to say, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So what we see also here is that we have another ministry, which is illumination. When Paul talks about our hearts being enlightened, it's the idea of our hearts being illumined to the truths of Scripture. Now, Paul is not explicit here about the Holy Spirit in that ministry, but take a look at 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, and quite honestly, the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 2, if you read through the entire chapter, it really speaks to the Holy Spirit's ministry to illumine our hearts to his truths. But specifically, verses 12 and 13, we read now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So we have another ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us understand the word of God when we read it, when we're taught it, when we hear it. The word of God becomes life to us. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 2 reveals, amongst other things, that to the natural man, to the one who is unsaved, you know what the word of God looks like? Looks like foolishness. Looks like foolishness. But we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help illumine the word of God, to help us know that these are truly from God. And we all share that in common. 
but not only illumination, but the Spirit provides us access to God. Take a look at Ephesians 2, 18. Ephesians 2, 18 says, For through him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. This is the idea that we can go to God at any time with prayer requests. And we as a church body, we all have access. We all have direct access to God the Father through that one Spirit. That Spirit provides us with that access. But not only that, but look at verse 22. Verse 22, we read, In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I talked about this before, but us as the church, this is a beautiful temple analogy. When you look at the Old Testament, the the temple of God was the center of worship. That's where all the Jews would gather together to worship God. And today, the current reality is this. There isn't a physical temple. What there is are believers who together are being built into the dwelling place of God. But it says the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the Spirit is active in making us into the dwelling place of God. And then further down, Ephesians 4, 7, we read this. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Of Christ's gift. This is talking about each one of us, we've been given a gift. Now, once again, in this verse, Paul doesn't specifically mention the Spirit. In fact, he mentions it as Christ's gift. But take a look at 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. And you're going to see a very similar theme in 1 Corinthians 12 that you see here in Ephesians. It's this idea of the Spirit and the unity within the body. We read this in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then we go on further to verse 11. Verse 11 reads, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one, again, there's that truth again, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. So we see a couple of important truths here. One, that the Holy Spirit is the one that distributes gifts, spiritual gifts to each one of us. And why does he give us those gifts? It's for us to build up the body of Christ. It's to build one another up. Now, Ephesians 4, 7 called it Christ's gift. Here it says it's the Spirit that distributes the gift. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. It is a gift from Christ, but it is the Spirit who distributes those gifts within the body of Christ. And as we see here in chapter 12, the Spirit distributes those gifts as he wills. And these gifts, as I mentioned, they're there for us to build one another up. But we also see there in verse 13 that the Spirit also baptized us into the body. So as we think about these sevenfold realities that Paul is mentioning to us, the reason why he mentions body first and then spirit is because this tight connection between the body and the spirit. The spirit baptized us into the body of Christ. You see that right there in verse 13. Now, there are many, many other ministries of the Holy Spirit. I'm only just mentioning a few. I'm only mentioning the ones that I saw in the book of Ephesians. 
You could go into a number of other epistles and really do a full-length study on this, and it would be a very rich, rich study. In fact, I haven't even mentioned, you can just write this down, Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18 shows that we are filled by the Spirit. In other words, we are led by the Spirit. And not only that, but 2 Peter 1 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21, it's not on the slide, but 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21, shows that all revelation comes by the Spirit. All revelation comes to us from God through the Spirit. Now, when we think about the fact that we share this in common, one Spirit, we have to remember that there are a lot of false spirits in the world. 1 John 4.1, it's not on the slide, but you can write this down. 1 John 4.1 tells us to test the spirits. And how is it that you're to test the spirits? Well, you're to test the spirits by the truth of God. There's a lot of false, there's a lot of false teaching going on out there. There's a lot of distortion of God's truth out there. there there's a lot of storylines. There's a lot of secular thinking that people are trying to squeeze into the Bible. A lot of people are trying to change the definition of sin or what is sin. A lot of people are saying that, no, it's okay for females to be pastors. No, it's okay for for Christians to be homosexuals and lesbians. And sometimes in some churches, they'll even affirm them as as pastors and and bishops and, and these other areas of clergy. You know, but we are to test the spirits, recognizing that the word of God came to us by the spirit. So when we say that we share in common one spirit, recognize the richness of the ministries involved by that Holy Spirit involved in our lives, but also involved in bringing us the word of God, involved in helping to illumine the truth to us and the importance for us to test the spirits. So we all have this same spirit working within us. We're all baptized into the body. We're all sealed by the Holy Spirit as as a pledge of our inheritance. We're all given illumination of the text. We're all given direct access to God the Father through the Spirit. And we're all being built built into a dwelling place of God by that same spirit. And we're all provided spiritual gifts. These are things that we share in common with one another. And every reality I just mentioned is more important than any secular commonality you can have with people outside the church. I love sports just like anyone. I love basketball. I follow the Lakers and they're doing exceptionally well. And I could easily fellowship or try to um, spend time just talking with other Laker fans about how well they're doing. You know, how their defense has been better than expected. How Dwight Howard has come back and accepted his role as a role player and doing a phenomenal job. You know, the, 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 the beautiful chemistry between LeBron and Anthony Davis. But you know what? Those are temporal realities. And those mean nothing compared to everything that I just mentioned here in terms of what the Spirit does for us. So we share in one spirit. And also, in considering some of the thinking of today's age and and some of these churches that that seek out new revelation. In fact, just this past um, midweek Bible study last Wednesday, we were talking about this. There is so much fascination. There's so much fixation by a lot of churches to seek out new revelation. Wanting to hear the word of God reveal something new. And it's amazing to me that so many people want new revelation and they don't want to spend the time to understand what's already been revealed. Why seek out new revelation when so much rich revelation has already been revealed to us? 
And the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst them is for us to be able to understand the revelation that has already been revealed. Whether it's by reading, studying, meditating, being here, listening to it proclaimed, we want to devote ourselves to the written word and trust the Holy Spirit to illumine those truths to us. But we not only share the Spirit in common, but the third item that we see in chapter 4, verse 7 of Ephesians is hope. Hope. The first thing we shared in common is we function as the same body. The second, we are led by the same Spirit. And the third, we share the same hope. Now, as we consider this hope, let's read on in verse 4. It reads, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. Now, let me talk about this word hope. I've mentioned this before, but it's always worth revisiting. When the world mentions hope, it's not the same as when the Bible mentions hope. That word hope has a very different meaning. When the world mentions hope, they're talking about something that's uncertain. They're talking about something that they want to have happen, but it's uncertain whether it will happen or not. Biblical hope is not like that. Biblical hope is certain. It just hasn't happened yet. It's hope because we haven't seen it. But we are certain that it will happen. So recognize when you see hope, this is not the same uncertain hope that the world engages in. This is a true hope. This is a sure hope. This is a hope that we know with absolute certainty will come to pass by the power of God. In fact, let's look at Paul's emphasis upon this hope in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We looked at that last week, but take a look first at how he mentions calling. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then once again here in verse 4, we see calling being referenced again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So as we consider this hope, we have to connect it to that calling. And the fact that we see calling being referenced so many times just in a couple of verses here, twice in verse 1 and twice in verse 4, means that calling must be pretty important. And if we want to understand what that calling is, that goes back to chapters 1 to 3. That's when Paul describes what that calling is. So that calling is very important, and it clearly refers to your call to salvation. And when we talked about the hope of that calling, this is not the first time Paul has emphasized the hope of that calling. Look at Ephesians 1, 18. Ephesians 1, 18. Paul said this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that you will know. What is the hope of his calling? Paul's prayer for us as the church is for us to know, amongst other things, what is the hope of that calling of God over us? Because that hope will sustain us. That hope will help us endure difficult times. And so the question is, what is that hope? Well, that hope, just in the first chapter from verses 3 to 14, we won't read that, but let me list them out in the next slide here. What is that hope? Just in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the hope is that we are chosen to be holy and blameless before God in chapter 1, verse 4. This idea that we as sinners have been chosen so that we would actually be able to stand before God being holy and blameless. That we've been predestined to adoption as sons. That's a reality that is true today, but will be fully realized in the future. It's the fulfillment of all promises in Christ. We see that in chapter 1, verses 10. 
that all of history is going to culminate. It's going to climax in the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we have also, in verse 11, we have been granted an inheritance in heaven. And then verse 13, we've been sealed by the spirit of promise. Why why is it called the Holy Spirit of promise? Because it's helping us to look forward to that hope. And then in verse 14, the spirit was given as a pledge to our inheritance. Notice how many of these items are very much future oriented. Notice how many of those realities look forward to our time in the eternal state with God in heaven. That is our hope. That's what we look forward to. So clearly that hope is future facing. Of course, we doesn't mean we don't receive blessings today. We receive many blessings today, don't we? We see God's hand working in our lives even today. But when it comes to the difference between this world and the next world, your best life is not now. Your best life is in the future in eternity. And there has to be no question in your mind about that. And so when we talk about this shared hope, it's a shared hope in the future, in the coming of Jesus Christ. And this is definitely a strong theme throughout the New Testament. Take a look at Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. Titus 2, 11 through 13, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hope is connected to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We may enjoy things on this world. We may enjoy activities in this world. We may enjoy spending time with loved ones. We may enjoy eating at nice restaurants, trying out new things, traveling around the world, seeing sights we hadn't seen before. But the hope that we must have very clearly in our lives, in our hearts, in our testimony, is the future hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ should far surpass and outstrip any temporal hope that we have today. Even more so than the resolving of our health issues or our financial issues or relationship issues that we may have. What we desire most of all is for Christ to come back. It's no mistake, it's no coincidence that the book of Revelation ends with the Apostle John saying, Come, Lord Jesus. That is where our hope is. And not only that, but 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, John writes this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared um, as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John talking about the future coming of Christ and how we're going to see Christ just as he is. And verse 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's amazing how much your lives in this present world become much easier to endure when your hope is fixed upon the future. 
You know, we send our kids to college, right? We send our kids to a four-year institution. And what do we tell them? Just put your head down and focus on, on your studies and doing as well as you can for four years. And once you get out, the rest of your life is going to be much easier, right? If you have kids that have gone to college, you've all done that. Because the idea is that the future reward is worth the present-day sacrifice. That that future reward after you get out, out of college is worth those four years of, of just putting your head down and focusing on your studies and doing as well as you can in order to get that degree. Well, James says our life here is nothing more than a vapor. And our time here in the present, which is nothing more than a vapor, is to prepare us for eternity. And if our hope is fixated upon eternity, it's amazing how much the present day is easier to endure. How much the present day, in spite of the circumstances, we can still obey God. We can still be, find our joy in Christ. That even in the midst of persecution or tribulation, we can still give glory to God because we know that hope can never be taken away. And so that is a hope that has to characterize our living. And then finally, take a look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. I'm purposely going through a lot of different books written by a lot of different people to see that there is a shared hope throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. This hope we have as an anchor for the, of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope, an anchor for the soul, is a beautiful, beautiful picture. You do well to remember that picture when you go through difficulties. But my purpose in wanting for us to really dive deep into this hope is to understand that all of us, all of us who are in Christ, all of us who have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of our lives, all of us who have been truly saved by God, we share this same hope. We share this same end goal. And going back to the team analogy, when you watch team sports, you know the teams that win the championship are the teams that work together. Players that are fixated on winning a championship, they want teammates who have the same goal. And when you watch sports, sometimes you can tell the difference between a player who's showing up with that mindset of wanting to win the championship versus one who's simply just wanting to build up their own individual statistics. Or maybe a player that's simply just showing up to pick up a paycheck. You see that difference and the players know that difference. That's why players want to play with other people that have that same kind of goal. Or even sometimes, even if you go into something like a restaurant. Or if you fly, if you fly any kind of airlines. You know the difference between served by someone who is simply there to pick up a paycheck. Versus someone who cares about customer service. Right? You know, even when you go into a restaurant, you know the restaurants that emphasize together customer service. They work together to make sure that the customer is served the right way. And you know restaurants where it's not emphasized at all because they treat you like you're just some bum from the street. Airlines, too. We see it in airlines. I won't mention airline names, but we see it in airlines. Certain airlines, you, you see a much, a much happier kind of attitude. You, you see a much, more, a much greater willingness to serve you, whereas others are just going through the motions. My point is this. When we have the same end goal, when we understand that we have the same purpose, we function together much better. And this is going to help you relate to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because this hope drives that person as well as you. And if you don't see that hope in your fellow brother and sister, that is a great opportunity to remind them of that hope. 
to remind them that we have something greater awaiting us. And so, unfortunately, when I look around at Christian, Christian America, I see a lot of churches that are emphasizing this world as being our goal. When we overemphasize social causes, when we overemphasize our own well-being, and especially the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, when we overemphasize and lift up books like Your Best Life Now, the idea is that your hope is in this current life. But no, what we share in common is not a hope now but hope in the future. Amen. We share that in common. We are united in that hope. And once again, these are examples, as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, I talked about unity. Unity, but dividing by truth. You know, we want to be united on the right thing. So even as Paul is emphasizing unity in this book of Ephesians, it's clear that unity is based upon very important doctrinal truths that we all confess and believe. One spirit, one body, one hope. And now as we come to the end, uh, let me just leave you with some principles of application from this message. There's four more that uh, we still need to cover. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. But even just these three are rich. And I really just was barely scratching the tip of the iceberg when it came to really expanding and showing you the various verses that emphasize these things. So my first counsel to you is to meditate upon these divine realities. You see, you understood these divine realities. It's not like I brought something new. But what Paul is saying here is that these divine realities, which by themselves are rich and glorious and worth your time and meditation, but these divine realities are meant to bond you guys together in unity. That's the part that most of us overlook. So meditate upon these truths and how they serve as the basis for unity. Second point I have, consider how you can better love one another as a result of these realities. Consider how you can better love one another as a result of these realities. Remember, the first three verses talked about humility, enduring with one another, being patient with one another, in love. None of us are perfect. We all have our shortcomings. We all stumble. We all make mistakes. But we are called to love one another, to be patient with one another. And as a result of these things that we share in common, it should actually be much easier to do that. Third, Remind yourself of these realities as a motivation to bonding more with others within the church. As a motivation. If you enjoy the, these realities that I just mentioned, that, we have, that Jesus Christ died for his body, that we are one body together, that we have one spirit in all the ministries that the spirit provides to us. If you, if you love the reality that we have a hope that can never be taken away, these realities should also motivate us to becoming more bonded with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And my last point, because the next reality that I did not cover was one Lord. My next point was to, is to worship Christ the Lord. And this is so important, especially in this upcoming week, as we get closer and closer to the middle of the Christmas holiday season. Now, I don't have it up on the board, but turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. You will recognize these verses. These verses are read often during the Christmas season. But as we consider 
the fact that we have one Lord. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, we read, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel and a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. But it is a reminder that the baby that came in the major is Christ our Lord. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me just say that all these divine realities that I just mentioned, they don't apply to you. You are not part of the body of Christ. You do not share in the same hope that we share in. You do not benefit from the ministry of the Spirit working with you, illuminating God's truth to you helping to lead you and guide you, providing you a promise of your future inheritance. But let me say this, you need these realities. You see, there's going to come a time after this world ends that we are all going to stand before God. And only those whose sins have been covered by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross will be found innocent. For the rest of us, because all of us are sinners, And if you have not confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will not be able to stand on your own works because your sins condemn you. And our God is a righteous God. He is a holy God. He must condemn sin. But if you put your faith into his son, Jesus Christ, if you recognize that he came to die on the cross, he didn't simply come to be a spiritual example. He didn't simply come to bring more love into the world. He didn't simply come to fulfill any other goal except to die on the cross for those who would believe in him. That is the only way to salvation. That is the only way to be with God in eternity. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you're willing to repent of your sins, if you're willing to forsake your sins, turn away from them and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ and follow after him you will be saved. If you confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, you will be saved. Do not leave here this morning without talking to myself or one of the deacons. In fact, deacon and your wives, can you stand up for a moment? Deacons and your wives. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, but you are feeling the pull, if you want to know more, if you want to be able to pray with someone, you can approach any one of these godly men or women. Thank you very much. You can talk to me, but please do not leave without addressing this need for salvation. Now, for the rest of us, I hope that these divine realities serve as an encouragement to us. They may be convicting as well if if we have failed to really love one another within the body of Christ. Use these realities as the basis, as the motivation, as the commonalities to understand why our relationships with one another within the body are so much more important than our relationships with anyone outside the church. You will glorify God, and you will show that not only do you know the reason for the season, 
but you will understand the unity that Jesus Christ came to establish. Now let's close in prayer.